At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 196. Hey there, I'm working on a very big podcast right now, and it's Christmas time, and so this is a rebroadcast of an episode from exactly... One year ago, one of my favorite interviews with one of my favorite scientists, the fantastic, and here's where it jumps to the audio from the previous episode, the fantastic Moira Dillon, a cognitive scientist who studies cognitive, well, just cognitive everything, but who is currently working on spatial reasoning and abstract thought. This conversation goes everywhere. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it because we cover everything from why and how brains create art, spatial domains, abstract thought, what the mind is, subjective reality, objective reality, her crazy round room where they do experiments, psychologism, Elizabeth Spelke, linear perspective, nature versus nurture, is math real, what is innate, what is not, cave paintings, how to communicate, how the brain renders 3D to 2D, back to 3D, back to 2D, back to 3D, language, Bookstrapping of language by art, art bookstrapping language, inferential models, and more. Also, a note, as I sometimes have to say, when you go out and get audio like this, it's not going to be the greatest audio. It's a little weird. It's not bad. It's just different. But the audio does sound like I'm recording it in somebody's office. No need to keep introducing it. Here is the conversation with Moira Dillon at NYU. My name is Moira Dillon. I am an assistant professor of psychology at New York University. And what do you study? I study cognitive development. You once told me that your aim was to study abstract thought. Is yes. Is that still true? It's absolutely true. Um, so I'm really interested in how we as humans are able to conceive of things that are outside of our perceptual access. Um, how can we build on foundations about the physical world that we've inherited through evolution, these intuitions about these foundations that we've inherited through evolution, to achieve the complex and abstract human thought that we're able to achieve by adulthood. And I think the spatial domain is a really good domain, a good test domain in which to investigate this question, um, because we know a lot about our physical intuitions in the spatial domain, and we've also developed highly complex formal systems to describe space and learn new things about space. And just so that we can build a good foundation for the later part of our discussion. Yes. 
what is the spatial domain? Like, what is the what's a good definition? A good, nice, short, pithy definition of that? Yeah, um, uh, the spatial domain is uh, includes navigating from one place to another and recognizing objects in the spaces that we navigate. And the way that's the way that's manifested in whatever the mind is. That's right, okay. and I think that that's so that that's the physical instantiation. Um, in the abstract instantiation, it would be um, you know navigating in in scare quotes an infinitesimal space that um, has no bounds and has entities, quote-unquote objects, right, that are infinitely small or extend on forever Yes, and ever. I've been in the round room, so <laughs> I've felt existential dread. That's uh, right. You, which you built here for your own mad scientist purposes. Uh, totally you, mad. You, yes, you <laughs> built a, a Romulan in, uh, interrogation chamber that is uh, that you'll hear audio of in the show of uh, that is that is so sciencey and so cool. Um, which leads to the second question, um, just for the sake of establishing a foundation, what is abstract thought? Oh boy! Um, <laughs> I walk into, I walk through between the columns in a toga and just yeah. ask of the crowd, what is abstract thought? Yeah, to me, I can operationalize that as our ability to conceive of um, things that we can't perceive. So something like understanding uh, how an infinitely small point can enter our thinking to begin with, right? How we can reason using that concept. That's abstract thought. Okay. Um, and you um, have a really interesting experiment that you're, that you're doing right now, or that you have been doing, and you have a paper, uh, I think it's, it may still be in review, I don't know. They're forever in review. Okay. Right. <laughs> the, um, where you take four-year-olds and you have a room, you have the room that we spoke of just a moment ago, and you have mm -hmm. a model room, What's, what is that experiment? What are you trying to learn there? So um, I've been working for a long time on children's interpretation of drawings, overhead depictions of spaces and perspectival pictures of spaces. And I've been really interested in what geometric information they extract from pictorial representations and how they use that information to navigate with the real physical environment that's, that's depicted. So for a long time, I looked at the perception and use of geometry from a picture that's already created. Now I'm interested in going in the other direction, asking how children translate information about 3D spaces that they can perceive and move through onto a 2D piece of paper. So how do they produce drawings about navigable layouts and objects in those layouts? So in this particular experiment, the first that my lab did, we were interested in how that translation might differ for layout information and object information. And so what we did is we presented four-year-old children who at this point haven't been trained really how to draw, haven't received too much formal instruction. We put kids either in this fort that had three walls and three objects or in front of this toy model of the fort where um, everything was kind of an object. The walls that corresponded to the fort were still object parts because they were small and you couldn't navigate through them. And we just asked kids to draw exactly what they saw. And we were interested in whether kids drew the walls in the fort and how they drew the walls in the fort. So that was kind of the key variable or the key element that we were interested in that differentiated that had its own spatial category. Mm -hmm. And um, so the instructions were very clear, draw exactly what you see. And our dependent variable was very simply just the counts of the wall and object elements in the fort and toy conditions. 
and we predicted that children would leave out the walls in the fort condition for two possible reasons. Um, one, they just didn't pay attention to them. So the way that we navigate by spaces is automatically using this wall information or layout information to figure out where we are. And we don't tend to translate information that we um, kind of perceive or use automatically onto a very explicit communicative symbol mm -hmm. like a drawing. Mm -hmm. That's one argument. Um, so just like in language, the first uh, words we use are about uh, objects in spaces. Um, the first things we might draw are the objects in our pictures, mm -hmm. um, not layout information. So they did a room with walls, and there's stuff in the room. Yeah. When you ask them to draw what they just experienced, they draw the stuff in the room, yes. not the walls. That's correct. And we can use this toy condition as a control condition because everything in that toy is an object, but there's still the same background and foreground relations, the same relative size relations. So if it were simply about just drawing things in the foreground or just drawing the smaller things, then they should leave out the quote-unquote walls in the object too. Mm -hmm. But they don't. They draw the quote-unquote walls or those object parts in the toy, but they don't draw the walls in the fort. Mm -hmm. And again, the unique thing about the walls in the fort is these are elements of the navigable layout. Um, and the walls and the object are just parts of the toy, parts of the object. And, have you had have you had adults do this to? We haven't, but we will. Okay. Um, I have a weird question, which is like, I am at. Are there going to be people who draw? When you say, "I want you to draw what you see," and they draw the model. Yeah. Will they draw the model and also the walls around the model, like the meta level of what they're experiencing? Not really. Um, so we say the instructions are: draw exactly what you see. Draw a picture of this toy. Okay. So, so we do saw, kind of restrict okay. it a little bit. Right. Some kids will draw things like the camera that's recording their behavior or, you know. Oh, that's cool. Um, so I want like a kid that will draw like themselves drawing the drawing. And it happens like, sometimes. Oh, really? Yeah, those are special ones. That's so cool. <laughs> I know. I'm like, like, that's the ones, they're the ones that get, I don't know why we have Star Trek on the brain, but those are the ones that will get like selected for Starfleet Academy. It's totally permissible, right? So again, like, these things are communicative, right? And you can put on a drawing anything that you think conveys the scene in a way that you want to convey it, right? Because that's the, that's the core of what you're investigating, right? Is like, what is what is happening in this the mind of this organism? Yeah. That, that it, it, how is it attempting to communicate what it's experiencing? Right. Uh, in in the symbolic in, medium. In the symbolic medium so that it will be transferred from that mind space to a new mind space. Right. That is not the mind space of the owner, quote unquote, of the, of the producer, the producer of the thing. Correct. I love that having to make up, we have to make up words for what we're talking about because this is a very, this is a very strange place. Like, I love that your work is, is just out there in the world of like philosophical concepts that we've been like plundering for 2000 plus years. And then like at some point, somebody's like, well, if we just put some like qu quantitative mathematical can measure it, uh, like work, into this, maybe we can like go from like toga toga dancing to, to, an, to, to answering a thing or two, which can lead to another a higher level of philosophizing. Or hopefully, totally. I That's my idea. I no, I, I totally agree. Um, there's a. Um, I was looking through your uh, CV here. Sorry about that. That's okay. Uh, and. I have this very lazy way of like going. I bet this would be a neat thing to talk about mm -hmm. by just going. Which is okay. Like I've learned that like the uh, academia knows that uh, of science journalists, and so they make up uh, the really cheeky titles for things, right? And, uh, <laughs> and that's so that there's a, that's sort of a meta dynamic that's taking place. But there was something in here, um, and let me see. If I think it's uh, yeah, the, I had read this in a, in a separate article about 
children's expectations about training the approximate number system. That's one of those not sexy titles of a, of a, of a uh, or not cheeky either. But if I remember reading about this correctly, there was something to do with what, learning how to teach certain geometric and mathematical things using some of the ideas that you're talking about that, um, and I don't, I don't want to over-explain it because I think you'll explain it better than me, of course, but like the knowing what some things may not necessarily be innate. Some things may be categorically innate that it's a problem that all cultures come up against and they solve it differently. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so this study was trying to investigate causal links between our intuitions about numerosity that emerge early in human development and are present in other animal species and our understanding of symbolic arithmetic. So I had mentioned before that there are these intuitions about numerosity we can measure even in newborn infants, and it's fairly abstract. You can play a 48-hour-old baby four tones, show them a display of four items or 12 items, and they're orient towards the four items versus the 12 items. For babies uh, for whom you play 12 tones, they'll orient towards the 12 items, not the four items. So not only is this representation of numerosity sort of present, it's um, uh, kind of works across two modalities, auditory and visual representations. Mm -hmm. So there's this idea that we have this uh, sense of number that is fairly abstract from very early on in human development. There have been studies in the lab showing that the acuity with which you can discriminate between two sets of um, uh, represented numerosities when they're shown as dots, for mm. example. Um, the acuity with which you can do that is predictive of how good you are at doing symbolic arithmetic, like, you know, three plus four equals seven, mm. right? Um, represented as the, um, the, the number symbols. And so the, uh, there have been plenty of uh, correlational studies showing this relation. In the lab, there have also been um, training studies that have shown that if you improve or if you practice and improve your um, ability to discriminate dot arrays approximately, then you can actually perform better and faster in um, in these symbolic arithmetic problems. But as a cognitive scientist, you know you're interested in the mechanism that allows that causal link between these two capacities. Mm -hmm. Again, the overarching theme being. We have intuitions about the physical world. We have symbolic and abstract reasoning abilities. How do these two things relate to one another, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So we want to know what the mechanisms are. Is it really that our ability to discriminate dot arrays, you know, large numbers of dots in an approximate fashion, is the key, key ingredient to symbolic arithmetic? Or what else is going on, right? So um, one of the things that's possible is that when you get trained in discriminating dot arrays, you feel really good about doing number-like things, and you feel motivated to do number-like things, and you expect that any number test you do afterwards is going to be better because you just practiced a bunch of number things. So this is a causal link between approximate numerical training and symbolic arithmetic, but it has less to do with your physical intuitions directly contributing to your symbolic intuitions. And so this particular study measured how much children expect to do better in a symbolic math test after training on an um, approximate numerical test. And if we can say, hey, they didn't have any expectations afterwards about how they would do on a symbolic math test, then it's somewhat more evidence that the link between these two, the causal link between these two, is not about something like expectation or motivation. It's potentially more about 
the content, the numerical content that's underlying this approximate judgment and the numerical content that's underlying the symbolic judgment. Mm -hmm. um, so it's able to zero in a little bit more on that numerosity idea or numerosity intuition being something that underlies both, as opposed to something that underlies a lot of our behavior, motivations, expectations, etc. Mm -hmm. um, and so as a cognitive scientist looking for mechanisms that link our physical representations to our symbolic representations, we want to know how precise or how well-defined is that link and what are what is it made of? Um, is it made of something abstract like numerosity representations or is it, um, is it attributable to more domain general kinds of things that direct our behavior all the time like expectations and motivations? So what is, uh, did this lead to some new sort of uh, curricula or some? I mean, you know, and, if so, and if it did, what was it? So it was really important for us to figure this out as a cognitive scientist because at the same time we were de designing an educational intervention that was aiming to train this approximate numerical, uh, these approximate numerical representations in four-year-old children and then test them on their symbolic skills. Mm -hmm. um, it was part of a large-scale randomized controlled trial done in collaboration with Pratham in India and Esther Duflo and her team um, from the Poverty Action Lab at MIT. Esther just won the 2019 Nobel Prize along with some of her colleagues. So she's quite an influential character and um, she absolutely kind of deservedly won this incredible award because she sets up these randomized controlled trials that look for real scientific evidence for the efficacy of particular interventions. So, um, you know, in our partnership with her, we were designing these math games that we thought could potentially improve uh, poor children's um, school readiness in mathematics in India. Um, so she was sort of interested in, oh, is this going? Are these games going to work at all? Mm. Um, so we're designing these approximate uh, math games or uh, numerical math games for these kids to play, and they may have worked even if it was about motivation or expectation. And I think she would have probably been okay with that. But she was collaborating with a bunch of cognitive scientists too, who wanted to know, you know, is it about motivation and expectation, or is it about numeracy? Yeah. Um, that's that's um, underlying these kids. Uh, gains. Yeah. Um, so it was important for our work um, because we were at the same time designing an intervention that really was trying to capitalize on this causal link. Um, and if you're thinking, um, even as an economist or a cognitive scientist, about scaling this intervention, you want to know the, the important kernel of success, mm -hmm. right? If what we have to do is train these shared numerical representations, then our intervention better touch on that. Mm -hmm. If all we have to do is train motivations or expectations, then our intervention better build on that. Mm -hmm. So while it's possible to have an intervention that has both, um, if you're thinking about scaling it, you kind of want to know what is the most precise definition of the mechanism that we can then take into other interventions that will ensure that we get a positive outcome. Mm -hmm. What'd you, what'd you so we found in <laughs> this first intervention that um, kids' uh, intuitions about number and geometry were improved um, not only immediately after the intervention, but six months later and 12 months after that. Mm. Their translation of that improvement to symbolic math only happened after one to three months after the intervention. So presumably the symbolic math they were learning at the same time they were exercising their intuitions. Mm -hmm. By six months and 12 months after that, um, the transfer to symbolic math had disappeared. Um, and there are a couple of reasons why this... Yeah, what's the big picture for like a... 
for somebody who's listening to this going, like, yeah. that's a lot of stuff for me to suddenly to know exists and yeah. have to think about. What was the big picture takeaway? Though? The big picture takeaway was that we think that you need more than just um, training numerical and spatial intuitions to translate into success um, in symbolic math or school readiness in the real and complex environment in which this learning actually happens. And how do we go about doing it? So one approach we took is to try to make a new intervention that better complemented the kind of math they would see later on in school. Mm. So in India in particular, a lot of the early math training is um, about rote memorization and is purely presented in symbols. So what we did in our second intervention is that we incorporated some of this symbolic content um, into the training itself. So there would be um, there would be a bridge between those intuitions and symbolic representations already existing in the training mm. that could potentially allow for new symbolic content to build on that pre-existing link. Okay. Um, so we did that in a second intervention, and it worked better. Um, so in this intervention, we had four conditions. We had a no-treatment condition. We had a, a purely non-symbolic or intuitive training, just like our first intervention. We had a purely symbolic training. Mm-hmm. And then we had a combined training. And long story short, the combined training with both intuitive and symbolic content um, worked the best on the long term. Mm-hmm. Twelve months after the intervention, the kids who had got that who had gotten that combined training were better both in their intuitive skills and their symbolic skills um, relative to the no treatment group um, and the two other treatment groups. Science, y'all. Science. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So you uh, are fascinated with taking objective reality, how objective reality becomes subjective reality and how subjective reality gets spit back out into objective reality so that other people can take whatever happened in people's minds and utilize it in some way to communicate things that only happen within minds or things that are happening in objective reality. Correct? Uh, what do you mean by subjective reality? I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? Whatever happens in minds. What happens inside the black box of the skull, the brain, the stuff, yeah. the weird things. I think that we have a lot more in common then in our subjective reality um, than... Uh, than one might think, right? So this goes back to the idea of cognitive empathy, right? Mm. Um, which Let's talk about cognitive empathy. I haven't specifically talked about that, and I think that's a really fascinating idea. Talk about that for a second. Yeah, so um, Edmund Husserl you know, kind of um, talked a lot about this idea of cognitive empathy. The idea is that, you know, we may have slightly different perceptions about the physical world, and um, we're kind of generous in the way we treat other people's perceptions of the world by saying, okay, that's just the way that this person sees it, as opposed to concluding that there are different worlds that exist for each of us. Mm -hmm. So it acknowledges some common ground in uh, the way that we interact with um, the physical and mental entities of everyday life. I love the idea of cognitive. The way I've I've tried to explain it to people is like, uh, you know, the specifics of what's going on in another person's mind might be different than your own, but like how it is generated is broadly very similar. Strikingly similar. So you should like give people a, a break if they've arrived at a certain inferential model, yeah. a certain conclusion, they've developed a certain attitude, right. or they're using a certain value to like titrate all those other things. Absolutely. Because that's how brains do what brains do. Yes. And, and they didn't like 
as oddly as this is going to sound for much, much of what we think, feel, and do, they didn't necessarily choose all that. And there's a place where, like, if you believe in uh, that we get to choose things, if, yeah. you, if you believe that that's, what, that's possible, uh, free will and such, which this is the perfect environment to even to throw that word around, throw that term around. But if you believe there's any free will, like you have to give people a minute about what they're working with. Yeah, and I think the free will question is actually really relevant, right? So if it were just, we have these cognitive mechanisms that are, um, you know, set to across humans, right? Set to perceive objects, spaces, people, right? And we have these learning mechanisms that are optimal, right? Then it does kind of introduce risky territory, for, you know, the questions of free will. Um, you know, we have dispositions for attending to certain things. We only have these kind of reinforcement learning things. Oh, no, now we have behaviorism. Mm -hmm. um, but we have language, too. Mm -hmm. And language is something, I believe, that allows us to combine all of this stuff in ways that allow us to escape the kind of traps of behavior behaviorism or the um, inability to have free will. If you're listening to the podcast, we're now going to go into uh, Mora's lab, but I already did that. But it's just going to be a little editing trick, and I'm letting you know. And then that's also for me to, like, edit it. So this is a room that is totally cylindrical. And if I close this door, which is spring-loaded, you wouldn't be able to tell which of the panels is the door. Uh, and what's super cool about this room is that you can set up different environments like the one we have in here right now that can restrict the geometry that someone can use when they're treating this as, as a navigable layout. So right now we have these three rectangular walls and these three rectangular objects, and we have little target locations placed strategically in this room. And the idea is that the position of these targets is really well defined just by the features that we put in here. So you can't use any of the external information outside of these features to kind of orient. So, uh, I feel like I'm in an episode of Lost, yeah. or <laughs> The Prisoner, or some, uh, I've been captured by the Romulans. Yeah, it's literally disorienting, and that's the point. Yeah. Um, so the classic experiment that's done in, in a room like this is called a reorientation experiment. It's something that's done not only with little humans, like the ones that I test, but other animal species as well. And the idea is you can set up a rectangular chamber. So in, in that case, there would be a fourth wall here. You can set up a rectangular chamber in the middle of the room, and you can hide targets, say, in the corners or at the middles of the walls. Um, and you would hide, let's say, for a little kid, a sticker at one of these corners. And um, the kid would have to remember where that sticker was. He would put them in the center of the room, close their eyes, and spin them around. And so by the time they open their eyes, they would be disoriented because there are no external cues to their position. They would only have the geometry of this layout to reorient themselves. So with that, you can test what kind of geometry they actually use to reorient. So in this case, let's imagine, again, that these little three objects aren't here and that we have a fourth wall. There is a long wall on your left and a short wall in front. Let's say that's the target. If you turned around and faced the opposite direction, there would be a long wall on the left and a short wall in front. So if you were able to use this geometry, you would confuse, say, that uh, actual target location with a diagonally opposite target location that's defined by the same geometric relations. Mm -hmm. And so kids would search indiscriminately between these two targets, um, uh, indicating that they could use this 
uh, layout geometry to reorient themselves and find a particular position in the environment that had been hidden before. Um, this use of geometry is not only something that kids use, but rats use it, newly hatched chickens use it, zebrafish use it, and the idea is that these geometric features of the layout are good tools for allowing us to determine our position in space and, say, define a cognitive map of an environment. Is there, what is the most surprising thing that humans do in your, in your, in your work in these environments? Okay, so I, um, I didn't get to the most surprising thing about this kind of task, which is completely incredible. So you're looking at three, or in the case of the, the task I'm describing, would be four gray walls, mm -hmm. okay? So imagine that one of these walls was blue, okay. okay? So let's say this wall is blue, and so the target location is actually defined not only by the geometry of the layout, but also a particular layout feature, like this blue wall, okay? Mm -hmm. So now, this target should be differentiated from the opposite corner target, right? Where there's no blue wall, but the geometry is the same. So what's crazy is that uh, rats and all sorts of other animal species and young children do not combine information about the layout geometry with a particular feature to disambiguate the two geometrically equivalent locations. So a four-year-old child will search here or here just as they would um, in a totally gray room as when they're given a feature that distinguishes between these two locations. An adult will not. They will combine the blue wall information with the geometry and search always at this correct target location. What do you think is going on? So the, the argument is that these two kinds of representations are neurally and cognitively dissociated from one, one another. There is a, a neural and cognitive representation of the geometry of the layout. There is a totally different circuit or mechanism that underlies our use of landmarks for navigation. And for young children and other animals, we can't combine those two representations to, say, find a target that is defined both by layout geometry and landmarks. And we can't combine them because the brain hasn't reached that stage of development yet? So, again, another one of the arguments is that what allows us to combine this is language. So we can represent linguistically the idea left of the blue wall as opposed to left of, you know... Language? Language. It's one of the prevailing hypotheses. Another one is that um, throughout experience navigating to the certain location, you learn associations between the geometry and the landmark. So actually, these are not mutually exclusive. Um, rats will eventually learn to combine the layout geometry with the landmark feature, um, but it's not something they'll do in the first shot or second shot, hmm. um, which is dissimilar from the first or second shot use of the geometry itself. Okay. So that basically the two explanations are that young children and other animals will not off the bat combine geometry and landmarks. They'll use just geometry. Adult humans will use both automatically. Um, and young children and other animals can eventually associate geometry and landmarks to effectively discriminate the two geometrically equivalent locations, but this takes time and practice and learning. What the adults have that the other animals don't have and the children don't have is this ability to represent in language, you know, it is this ge geometric relation plus this featural relation. Um, and there have been some studies in adults that uh, verbally interfere with their linguistic representations by having them recite, um, you know, strings of letters or whatever. And in those cases, the adults look like kids where they'll use just the geometry and not combine the geometry with feature information. Wow.
And now we're back. Okay, okay. so lang- language. So there's a beautiful essay by Dr. Elizabeth Spelke, who was my thesis advisor, um, and um, I hope will be a mentor for as long as humanly possible. She has a beautiful essay on this um, in response to um, sort of these same issues put forth and discussed by Chomsky. And um, she basically discusses how free will is possible through human language um, above and beyond these intuitions we have for domain-specific knowledge systems like objects, agents, and places, and all of these learning mechanisms that we have. And it's because language allows us to combine thoughts in a way that is totally generative and allows us to have these new thoughts that otherwise wouldn't be possible if we only had these restricted tools of domain-specific knowledge and learning. Just as you were demonstrating in your uh, round room. Exactly. So, just uh, to, okay, so we're in a, we're in a room that's like a, uh, in a rectangular box, mm-hmm. and you put a sticker in a corner, mm-hmm. you blindfold people, young and old, spin them around, mm-hmm. and say, where's the sticker? Since the box is a mirror image on one side to the other, they have to use something to disambiguate. Um, if you're a little kid or a rat, uh, you will have to use the geometry. Mm-hmm. But you might paint one of the walls blue, which gives you another way to disambiguate. Yes. A kid or rat ignores the blue wall and still uses geometry, but an adult will go, ah, I have a shortcut to find the thing. This is a way to disambiguate more quickly and more efficiently, and they use the blue wall. Yep. With the geometry. With the geometry. They combine the color information and the geometrical information, and you're saying that they do that because there's there's a language is being employed. That's one argument, okay. and there's empirical evidence for that argument, um, that the mental representation now is layout geometry plus landmark feature, and first shot, you get that correct target location. Um, for rats and little kids, they can eventually learn that uh, if they use those two features together, then they can disambiguate the targets, and they learn to associate the blue wall with the target, mm-hmm. and by some number of trials, they will then start going directly to the target location and ignoring the diagonally opposite corner. Mm-hmm. There is an empirical question, you know, about what is underlying this representation. The fact that adults can do it basically first shot um, suggests that maybe there is a new kind of representation that they have that is unifying or integrating layout plus landmark feature. Um, and um, one possibility is that they're doing this through language. So if you give an adult a verbal interference task, they actually tend to look more like children or rats and now ignore the blue wall and go to the diagonally opposite location um, often, um, as well as the correct target location. Mm -hmm. Um, For rats and children, again, they can learn to associate these features. So there are really cool tracings of um, rat behavior in these search tasks where they'll go to one corner They'll check to see if the landmark feature is there and then turn around and go to the other corner mm-hmm. where the correct target is. So it's not this kind of automatic thing. Mm-hmm. But the um, I think computational work can, by looking at kind of error response time, can try to figure out whether or not what the adults are doing is really one unified representation of layout and feature versus some just really quick additive process. Mm -hmm. So something that's more similar to what a rat or a child might do versus something that is um, qualitatively different. And I think that's not 100% um, kind of nailed down yet. No, of course not.
And now we take a break from our program for a word from our sponsors. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 
this year. 25, 25 years, 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. Science-y. It's really cool. We have lots of weird little corners yeah. of strange it's, kinds of... It feels good. It yeah. feels like what I always thought it would be. But. Yeah. Um, so this was a bit of a coup for me to get this built in New York City, um, in this building, which is otherwise many demands for space. Sure, yeah. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. It was, I was lucky because they were doing a renovation of this part of the floor anyway. Yeah. You can Airbnb this when you're not using it. Right. <laughs> um, we're going to have like a rave in here or something. <laughs> you should do that. It's yeah. good. Show me some of the notes. Okay. So, um, so door is spring-loaded, you can get out of here. Okay, good to know. Um, this is just storage space back here. This is my infant testing room. So it is decidedly, everything is going to be um, significantly less exciting after you see the round room. Sure, of course. Um, but basically, this is a room, it's kind of a multi-purpose room. Uh, we can run infant experiments in, in here, and largely the setup is that uh, mom or dad will sit with their baby on this chair here. The baby will be on the parent's lap and will present some experimental stimuli here on this extremely large screen. Um, and the way you design a baby experiment is you set up a scenario where something might be preferable or surprising if the baby detects that preferable or surprising thing. Mm. So let's say there's a violation of solidity, an object solidity. So you have like a solid wall and a ball is moving down a ramp and um, arrives just before, uh, just about to hit the wall and then you cover the, uh, the um, impact event. So you cover it and then you reveal the outcome, and the ball could either be on the correct side of mm. that wall, right, if that wall is solid, or it somehow magically goes to the other side of the wall. Um, this would be surprising if you believe that objects are solid and can't pass through one another. Mm -hmm. So a baby will look longer if that ball is on the opposite side, on the incorrect side of the wall, versus if it's on the correct side of the wall. And you can just measure baby's looking time to these surprising events, if they look longer to what you would think is surprising, that means they have this kind of representation that objects, for example, are solid mm -hmm. and shouldn't move past each other. And that's innate? 
Um, uh, I think object. Yes, I think representations of objects and their properties are likely innate. Sure. Um, and again, we can't tell this for sure with baby studies, even if you look at three-month-olds. Right? It's mm. um, uh, there have so, been some elegant studies with newborns on numerical representations that have been pretty convincing. But most of the innateness arguments come from studies with controlled reared animals. Um, that have basically yeah. no visual experience or um, any kind of experience of the outside world before they're tested on these yeah, kinds of Yeah, obviously things. I'm obsessed with this question. So like, yeah. I just want to, but I, mean, I know that we don't actually have the answer, but I'm interested to see what everybody thinks. Yeah, it's a hard question. It's also kind of like, um, it's a bit of a moving target, right? Where do you define innateness? Mm -hmm. um, because, I mean, there's activation of your visual circuits in the womb, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're relying on those activations or that circuitry to then see normally and make normal kind of visual predictions um, when you're born, like, does that count? Um, when does innateness start, right? Um. I mean, my take on it is... Um, I think that there are a lot of innate dispositions towards things like objects, recognizing objects, agents, places, and they come with a set of predictions. For example, that agents should move efficiently towards their goals. Mm -hmm. Once you recognize that something is an agent, once you recognize that something is a goal, you have a prediction that that agent is going to move efficiently towards its goal. Mm -hmm. You don't have to learn that. But what you do have to learn is kind of like the parameters that will allow you to identify where an agent is or what mm -hmm. it is or what particular kinds of actions can be efficient. There are beautiful infant studies, even infant training studies that suggest this. Um, the analogy is kind of like um, sort of universal grammar, you know, an explanation mm -hmm. of universal grammar, where you do need to have some parameters set in order for you to learn language, mm -hmm. but the structure of where all of those parameters map onto is, is pre-existing, is innate. Mm -hmm. That's the same kind of idea, I think, in a lot of these domain-specific knowledge systems that we can measure early in, in infancy in humans. Yeah. I think, I, the thing I'm currently like crazy obsessed with, is, I guess I will be forever, is like the ability to write to the hard drive is, also, is like, what it gets philosophically fun to me is that the ability to absorb culture is also a biologically driven ability. Yes, I think so, so. Even if it's not innate, it's innate that it can be not innate. Yeah. So, the, yeah, so what learning mechanisms you have, right? right? Yeah, so yeah. Um, I would suggest there are really three components um, that m make us humans ready to kind of be humans. The first is a set of domain-specific knowledge systems that allow us to recognize and interact with particular facets of human life, like, for example, um, physical objects, other agents with their own goals, and the spaces we navigate. Mm -hmm. The second is a set of learning mechanisms that allow us to efficiently and effectively build on this rudimentary knowledge like Bayes' rule, for example. Right, right, right. And then finally, it's the readiness for language. And those things together, I think, are um, super important ingredients to making mm -hmm. us human. Um, and, you know, among things like objects, agents, uh, places, there's potentially inclinations towards learning about social partners as well, um, and numerosity, these other kinds of domains of information that we seem to have foundationally, but can also be built upon once we learn these formal kind of culturally created knowledge structures, like in the case of number. There are beautiful studies um, with newborn infants looking at representations of numerosity and the abstraction with which babies are able to You were, we're talking about like the, this weird thing where you're talking. When you talk nature nurture, in our nature is the ability to nurture, or the ability to both give and receive information yeah. and, and add it to our like uh, models of reality, our priors, and our cultural repertoire, and to build a cultural repertoire, and for that to advance and everything. So like it's 
oftentimes when I'm like having this argument with somebody, like it's nature, it's nurture. I'm like, yeah, yeah but nurture is nature. Like it's a, it's a, you know, you get the idea. Yeah. Um, so even if it's innate, even if it's not innate, our ability to add to our models things that were not innate is an innate ability. Yeah. I like that because it's just fun to say. I think it's really loopy and, and philosophically strange. But you were saying earlier that um, we do sort of seem to have these very specific ways that we can learn. Yeah. Which leads me to a strange question is, are there ways we can't learn? And so we have a bounded ability to, like, add to our, our, our ourselves. Um, like, is there... A, could you conceive of there are domains of knowledge that we could not uh, partake in, or there are forms of ignorance that we could never um, remove from ourselves? Like, is there things yeah. that we could not know? Um, like, there's a certain optimistic, aspirational, like Star Trek Next Generation view of yeah. people that imagines there's no math too complex for the human mind not to crack and understand. There's no philosophical concept that human beings couldn't eventually unwrap, unfold, and blossom. Yeah. And then there's another thing which came to mind when you were talking, like, that maybe we are bounded in such a way that we do, there are borders to what we can do with this brain. What do you think? Oi. Um, okay. So, I think that, um, I think that we are predisposed to learn about and combine information, combine what we've learned about particular domains of life on this planet um, and with the kind of entities that exist here. And I think we've been endowed with those dispositions um, and learning mechanisms through evolution. So evolution has given us, for example, um, brain and cognitive mechanisms to recognize and interact with objects that have physical properties and move continuously when they're acted upon or predict the behavior of agents, right? These are very general categories that if you think about the world, capture a good amount of stuff mm. that we make good predictions about, mm. right? Yeah. Um, spaces, we have to move around them, mm -hmm. right? And we have to represent some kind of information about them that will allow us to efficiently interact with them. Um, social partners is potentially another one, especially for humans. Mm. Um, we have to be able to make inferences about the thoughts and behaviors of other people and beliefs of other people. Mm -hmm. I think that there are um, a certain set, like I said before, of domain-specific knowledge systems that we come ready to learn about and we expect things about. Mm. And we can measure in babies when those expectations are violated, that even really young babies seem surprised by that. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, I mean, this sort of has, I kind of sometimes think about it in the context of building AI, right? So some people believe the most elegant or powerful AI is the AI that emerges from nothing, right? Written on a blank slate. But I think if we really want to make human intelligence, we need to consider the kinds of foundational intelligences that we've inherited through evolution that have already kind of been developed for us or programmed for us throughout um, sort of history. Mm. Um, and I mean phylogenetic history. Mm -hmm. um, so I also think that we have a set of learning mechanisms that are more general um, and that we can use to build on this rudimentary knowledge. And there are things that are perhaps rather simple and um, abstract, like Bayes' rule, right, which um, 
exists in every human mind, but also exists in all other sorts of facets of life or um, sort of trends out in, in, in the everyday world, right, or things that happen in the everyday world, um, and that these are abstracts, which they can be, pro- you know, they can be programmed into a computer, even though they're also, you know, present in the human mind. Mm. Um, and so my sort of take on how to build human intelligence is to give it both these mathematical abstract tools, like these learning mechanisms that can be computationally defined or programmed, and these cognitive tools that we as humans have and have evolved for us through evolution. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, language is also a uniquely human capacity that we can use to um, represent new knowledge um, or combine information to achieve new kinds of thought. And we see this a lot playing out in um, developments throughout human cultures in formal systems like mathematics or physics. Right? We see a lot of the um, thinking being done in, an, in a sort of algebraic or linguistic kind of thing. You know, think about a, 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 an algebraic proof, right? All of those inferences seem to be done in the, in the medium of language itself, right? Mm-hmm. So what follows from what, given a certain logical representation and a set of rules that apply um, to these linguistic descriptions? Mm-hmm. In my own work, I've sort of uh, tried to figure out when people are doing really high-level abstract reasoning, what are the tools that they're relying on? Are they relying on these kinds of formal linguistic abstractions that we teach kids in school, for example, to understand or do proofs about um, Euclid's postulates? Or are they using their more intuitive um, kind of physical intuitions about everyday life to make these judgments? And my work has suggested that uh, a lot of the reasoning potentially that we do in a very abstract domain, potentially like geometry, is actually rooted in these visual dynamic simulations as opposed to the formal rules that we learn in school. And so it suggests that, um, that uh, you know, a lot of human thinking may be uh, reliant on these physical intuitions uh, for a long time, and even when it's framed in an abstract context. Because most of the time, given the formal systems we have, there is some trace back uh, to the physical intuitions that allowed us to build these formal intuitions or these formal systems to begin with. I'm feeling a question bubble up inside me, which okay. is, um, that sort of feels like, do you feel like you're kind of answering the question in some form or another, or in some aspect, um, did we invent math or discover math? Yeah. So I don't. So what, so yeah, what do you think? I don't know, but um, but it, it is this this topic is, is kind of skirts around an issue that I think philosophers have been talking about for a very long time. This idea, the idea of psychologism. So, um, Tell me more. yeah, so I, I wish I could, um, if you had let me prepare for this, I would have had I'll, all sorts I'll of, try. I'm sorry. Yeah, I have all sorts of interesting things to say. So I only have a couple of things to say about this. <laughs> okay. Um, so, um, Psychologism is the idea that philosophy um, is really the only kinds of things that we can talk about, the only kinds of philosophical investigations we can do are actually at the bounds of psychology. So our minds are only capable of reasoning about things that are kind of psychologically accessible to us. Um, So um, this is, you know, some philosophers, I mean, so psychologism is kind of like the bete noir of um, of philosophy, right? Um, psychologism is because it's like, well, we shouldn't be constrained by um, these uh, 
psychological capacities that we have, we should be able to philosophize about anything. And to say that we're just limited to um, the things that we can think of seems kind of um, below the bar for what psychologists or philosophers would like to be thinking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, it, you know, it says basically kind of delegitimizes philosophy as its own domain, right? Mm-hmm. Why aren't these people just psychologists then? If everything we really want to talk about or reason about or understand is restricted by the domain of psychology anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, so this debate is is kind of been a really long debate, Um and, um, uh, you know, I brought up Husserl in our, in our last conversation and I'll bring him up again. Do. Um, he, uh, he was accused of this, um, and later wrote kind of a response to that accusation. Um, you know, nobody wants to be called a psychologist, um, <laughs> but, uh, I probably am. Um, and I think I'm okay with it. Um, but but the idea is that it it, it kind of um, it challenges the uh, the um, disciplinary boundaries as well as what we think of as what we're capable of achieving in a in a human mind an understanding of the world. Um, so I do believe to no, long answer to your short question that there are limits there are to, no, to <laughs> every question I'll ask I understand how this works yeah, go ahead um, that there there are limits to what we can understand um, it is shaped by our pre-existing cognitive capacities that we have you know that have been shaped for us through evolution and yeah. the the um, the extent to which our learning mechanisms can build on those representations and the extent to which language can allow us to build on those representations. I mean, hold on, hold on. Okay. I mean, part of me is exhilarated by that, and part of me is really gut punched by that. And I want to let me frame that in a different way, and you can just answer this, and this would be easier for people who are listening to to like sort it out. Like, if I show my cat, whose name is Simon, yeah, the uh, iTunes agreement that comes up every once in a while, yeah, like yes or no, yeah, like. He can't. There's he, there's a vast gulf between what his brain can do yeah. and what is required of, of a brain to understand that agreement and say yes or no to it. Yeah. And what I'm sort of around about asking you because I feel like you actually can answer this question probably the best that any scientist currently could answer it. Okay. Is <laughs> I doubt that, but okay. Well, I mean, <laughs> is there like can we conceive of? It must be also true that that is. This is true for the human brain as well, even though I think that much of our science fiction and a lot of our philosophy aspires to imagine a human brain that there is no such thing as the iTunes terms and agreement for a human mind as it would be for a cat mind. You see what I'm asking here? Yeah. Okay. What do you think? I I absolutely think that there think that there are things that are out of our grasp of understanding. And does that mean that? on some evolutionary time scale, culturally and uh, biologically, and I know that they're intertwined, maybe there is some plane that we'll get to in some million-year future, or do you think that we'll have to create... This is a very big question. Yeah. Do you think that we'll have to create like artificial intelligence that has that capability? Will we ever have the... Is, are we like stuck forever in some of these like uh, bounded rationality, bounded yeah. learning places? I think with technological innovation, we can, um, you know... Uh, achieve new understanding that we otherwise wouldn't have been able to achieve without that innovation. Um, but I'm not sure what the limits of that technological innovation are, right? Mm. They're probably limited too. So I'll give you an example. 
I'm interested in um, how um, how linear perspective was achieved in human art. Mm. And I think that, that it was through technological innovation. And um, so the Hockney-Falco thesis kind of suggests the same thing um, in uh, in you know, in, in an interdisciplinary and controversial kind of um, exploration of the particular ways that um, uh, that perspective and depth information had been captured um, at a certain period of uh, time in the history of art. Um, I, I look at it through a more cognitive uh, lens because that's my area of expertise, but the idea is that at some point in the history of art, and again, they look at the West, but you can look at similar trajectories in other areas of the world. There was a point at which representation of depth information got way better and way quickly, yeah. way too quickly. I, 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 uh, I actually strangely had a note about this going into this conversation, yeah. because I think you may know that I'm really into this, too. Okay. Uh, uh, if, according to the art historian that I spoke to, it was 1413 is the hard date. The Dutch paintings? Uh, yeah, and they go back to the... The uh, Brunelleschi thing. Mm-hmm. That's the right way to pronounce Brunelleschi? it. Brunelleschi. Brunelleschi. Of course, yeah. I would do that. <laughs> uh, and um, with the mirror and the easel. Yep. One of my favorite stories. Really yeah. well told by uh, James Burke. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the way he presented it. And I'll just like softball up this in the air to use and take it from there. Yeah. The way he presented it was that. Um, I mean, I used to do this thing all the time. I always had this problem with like I was like you can like I take a paper cup and I would say. Just you should just be able to draw it if you can see it. If yeah. you can see it, you should be able to draw it. I felt like because you're just in my mind, you're just trace papering the the mind's eye onto a piece of paper, and then I would like I got so obsessed with this. I was I would go. I remember I had a party one time where I was had people. Like, yeah. Can you draw the cup? Yeah. And I was astonished that some people could could and some people could not even come close. Yeah. And it. I just started to dawn on me that I was, I was I was really ignorant about this topic, and then um, a friend of mine who had uh, been to art school talked told me a little bit about this, that, and the other. And I remember watching the thing with James Burke. We talked about this uh, this guy with the mirror thing, and what astonished me was the idea that art up until this point really has poor perspective, and then after this point, for some reason or another, it does have yeah. good perspective. And I'm like. You were walking, everybody, every single human being was walking around forever seeing perspective, but couldn't put it into artwork. Yeah. And then they could, and it's like an idea that gets invented, an idea that gets invented and it becomes a tool, a thinking tool that's no different than like the plow. Yeah. And then it changes how thinking works after that, which blows my mind. Yeah. Please talk about all this as you okay. were, and I interrupted. So, um, so I think that in terms of our cognitive repertoire, it is really hard to produce information on a piece of paper, a two D piece of paper, about the three D aspects of uh, human life, spaces, and objects. I think it's particularly hard in the context of spaces, and so the challenge of an artist is to take. 3D spatial information that we can perceive automatically has been useful for us to perceive automatically throughout evolution, not only us, but other animal species, and then do something uniquely human with it, translate that 3D representation onto a 2D piece of paper, which means whatever efficient and useful geometry I am able to take in, I now have to reproduce as a bunch of 2D shapes on a piece of paper. And that's not a trivial task because Mm -hmm. we're not seeing a bunch of 2D shapes 
even though there's a 2D projection on our retina, our brain is making inferences about the 3D properties. Mm. And so we have to reverse that you know, process and try to reproduce perhaps something more similar to what's on our retina, and we have no access to that okay. information. Man, it's so weird. I'm feeling how dumb I am. Like, I, I totally see where I was lost in that just now for some reason, even though I've asked you this question before. So it's 3D, and the, what we're trying to do is produce a 2D image, not a 3D image. Right. So I'm not trace papering my... Right. My, the, the model. You don't have access to any of that 2D information. Your brain is giving you the 3D information about the world, which is actually a great thing because we need to move around in 3D. But it's not a real 3D interpretation. It's, it's a reconstructed... It's a, it's a model that's being exactly. generated because we're not receiving 3D information. We're receiving right. 2D information and inferring 3D information. Well, there's 3D information in the world. I would suggest that. Yeah. Um, and, but our eyes are not directly receiving that 3D information. We're receiving a projection of that information right. and our brains and minds make inferences about the 3D information. It is processed, though. Yeah. Um, and what we have to produce out is 2D information. Um, and that's totally pre-processed spatial stuff. And to kind of reverse that process mm-hmm. and convey 2D in 2D what the 3D space looks like is not something that our brain is giving us right. automatically. And, and, and it's it's just like writing an essay. I mean, like, that's not just like it, but similar mm-hmm. in that, categorically similar in my mind, because what you're doing is not just putting it on paper. You're, you're trying to make a thing that will then call something to happen in an observer's mind. Yes, giving them the same sense as if they were really looking at that 3D space again. So it's, it's like reverse engineer back on this, reverse engineer again, back yeah. on this. Like it's a multi-level process yes. of, of, of sort of playing in an in inference space. Yep, yep. And so uh, I'm really interested in this because I think we have really... Well, a well-defined understanding of all of the, well, a good understanding of all of the cognitive and neural tools we have for understanding 3D spaces and 3D objects. Um, we have a uh, incredible artistic tradition as humans. And so that those translations happened throughout human history probably over a protracted period, with interventions from culture, with interventions from technology. So how is it that we eventually took these automatic representations or perceptions of spaces and objects and eventually reverse-engineered that process, right, and allowed us to put those 2D shapes back on a uh, 2D plane, right, a 2D piece of paper or whatever canvas, and gave that same sense to an observer as if they were looking out into the 3D world. How were our minds capable of doing that, and how were, you know, as human societies, were we able to do that, do that process? Would you say this, that's, are, you, are you making a mission statement about your work in general? Is that like the Yes, that is one of my main or, areas yeah. of investigation. And so for the way that I approach this question is I look at the history of art, and I try to figure out what kinds of things seem to be difficult across cultures, mm. like, for well, example... Tell me. Tell, let's talk about that. So, yeah. So, um, representation of perspective mm-hmm. in layouts, right? So, I mentioned, um, uh, and you mentioned, too, the um, sort of the, uh, the formalization or the technological innovation of uh, linear perspective in the West. 
in Greece. I mean, there were rules about how to um, sort of draw in perspective, or the Romans used a kind of local perspective, where at any particular point, there would seem to be a vanishing point, but there wasn't a universal or one uni- unified vanishing point in the mm. painting. Um, these these kind of multiple vanishing points, though, did give a more dynamic sense of what a scene might look like, um, because we're not really looking without moving our heads at all, right, at one particular uh, view and having everything kind of recede to that one vanishing point. Um, In the East, there was development of atmospheric perspective. So um, the landscapes from the 12th century um, in uh, in the Song Dynasty developed, developed, developed different kinds of inkwash uh, uh, kinds of techniques that allowed for the emergence of more kind of depth information being perceivable in um, in the landscapes that they were creating. So what you know, I would argue that regardless of the culture, the the challenge was the same. The solutions might not have always been the same, mm-hmm. right? Um, using mirrors and lenses versus developing ink wash techniques, mm-hmm. right? But the the goal was the same to yeah. try to capture this depth information in the layout and the fact that it took a really long time um, and that it wasn't intuitive for humans to begin with to do this um, seems to be something that's in common. Okay, I've never thought this in my life, so thank you very much. I'm going to walk away from this with the, with this, and I hope people who listen to this also walk away. I just wrote it down. It's like, tell me if this is a good way to do it. Okay. So it's like there's the, there's three-dimensional space, and, you know, to not get into the weeds of how many dimensions there really are in reality, but we're the three-dimensional space that we perceive. Yeah. Real, real world, yeah. unquote, objective reality. Then the, the retina is a 2D space where it detonates against that and it gets turned into, you know, the ones and zeros of the brain. Then the mind creates another 3D representation of it through inferential models and mm-hmm. other such things. So, and then it comes back out of the mind, back onto paper or whatever medium, as uh, another two-dimensional thing. Yeah. And then new brains look at that, and then it goes into 3D space. So an artist has to move through a 3D to 2D to 3D to 2D to 3D experiential and and like not just experiential but in like physical like performance of connecting back and forth deconstructing constructing deconstructing from 3D to 2D 3D to 2D 3D yeah and that's what art is visual art yeah um and in doing this I'm trying to like uh paraphrase you so I understand what you're saying this has always been a struggle on multiple levels yeah and because sometimes a couple, we yeah I don't mean to interrupt you but it's sometimes we come up against things that were like I don't know how to do it yeah and then that is illustrative for a cognitive scientist like yourself of, well, that is going to explain something about how brains work. Yes. Amazing. 100%. That is amazing. And I think we can identify particular steps in that very well-articulated chain that you have mm-hmm. um, where we all can kind of connect to that frustration. So you make a drawing and you look at it and you're like, that's shit. Like, <laughs> that doesn't look like what I'm trying to depict, Right. And you know you're looking at your shapes and your brain is ready to kind of receive the spatial information depicted by a line drawing and make inferences about it. And if it doesn't look right, you know. But you don't know what to do to make it better, right? You don't know how you should position those lines differently to more accurately give your brain what it needs to make those inferences that this thing is representing a 3D space. Here's another example. When we're in art school, we um, learn a couple of different kinds of things that we're supposed to do. Um, one, we're supposed to try to unsee things as 
what they are and just kind of see them as a bunch of lines or gradients or whatever. And you learn things like, oh, just look at a certain part of your subject mm. at a time, right? And it breaks the holistic perspective of it as a person or a space or whatever. And then you're just kind of thinking about capturing particular lines. And piecemeal, you'll be able to put those little fragments together and it'll construct a space or a person or whatever. By breaking up that holistic perception of the things that your brain's ready to perceive, like a layout, like a person, like an object, you're um, breaking the inferences that your brain is making about how those things should look, and you can just represent the parts. And that's the kind of stuff that will allow you, by those part depictions, kind of eventually construct how something looks on a piece of paper. Mm. The... Uh, another thing is uh, when you're in art school, and I, I can say this because I was both a cognitive science science major and a fine arts major mm-hmm. when I was in college. I would so never I never expect, right? expected that. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, you learn literally rules for how to draw that have nothing to do with how you see. So, for example, if there, is, let's say I'm in a, a a concave environment like this one, right? There's a corner that is above my line of sight. And I want to draw that on a piece of paper. I'm taught that I should draw those lines up Mm -hmm. on a piece of paper. I don't see them as going up, but that's how I make that concave above my line of sight um, part of this layout look right as a 2D shape. Mm -hmm. So these formalisms, these rules that you learn, have nothing really to do with how you see. They're more a set of formal tools that you can use that will allow you to depict things without having to rely on what you see. This reminds me of uh, this old joke that uh, the I saw. I think it was on Reddit. The guy said, "My dad never, never. Uh, he always threw the instructions out whenever we were building furniture and mm-hmm. stuff. He's like, that's just some other man's opinion. Like, <laughs> like so, this feels the same way. Like, like this, this universal struggle to go from what's happening in my brain yeah. to putting to to then presenting it on in some you know media." Um, that formal tool that you're you're telling me about sounds like well this is how somebody this is a, this is a shortcut somebody came up with yeah and there's a difference between it being presented as this is one of many ways you might get through this or this is the way to get through this yeah. what how was your what was your experience was it presented as one of many ways or the way I think it was presented as the way but I mean I don't know I can't really remember that well I mean one of the advantages of having a the way that's been uh, kind of been developed throughout human history is mm-hmm. that you can then learn efficiently how to do it mm-hmm. right so we benefit from all of the struggles of humans in the past who didn't quite know the best way to describe what to do um this is why it might seem so easy to draw these days after one or two drawing classes. It belies the cognitive struggle that existed throughout human history to be able to get to do this to begin with, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not, you know, if if Brunelleschi had this tool, um, he might not have been so frustrated and, and um, sort of obsessed with setting up the right um, technological innovation to be able to figure out how to do this, right? Yeah. He could have just listened to somebody else, um, <laughs> yeah. right? And yeah. who told him how to do it. Yeah. Um, so I think... Um, I think there there are advantages to having rules like this, whether or not they're one way or many ways, and presumably there are many ways people are taught. But they probably all have the same flavor. 
um, you know, here is a description in language that will allow you to understand what I'm telling you to do and will allow you to achieve the result that you want. Um, I think this is not only something that is present in art, but is in other domains as well. Oh, yeah. I'm feeling like, I was like, this kind of explains a lot of things now that I think about it. Like, we're all, like, language is another thing, which even if we have innate, like, propensities for language, like, I mean, all of this is, we're all just weird clumps of, you know, neurological matter floating through space, trying to, like, we, we are creating these models and abstractions and all this stuff, like, um, how do we, when we meet another one of these entities, how do we share anything? And how do we, like, have shared goals? Or how do we, like, communicate what's inside of me so that you can know and we can, like, you know, sync up in some way? Like, language is this, is sim- has a similar trajectory of, like, real to brain to mind yeah. to real to other brain to yeah. mind. Like, it has to make this journey back and forth one way or another. And art and language, I can see where art and language are similar. I just feel like I learned something really big. I'm going to have to go drink. That's that's a big deal. That's a big deal. And I can see where language can help bootstrap art and art can help bootstrap language. And I think it's present in other formal domains too, right? So I was talking about mathematics before and judgments about um, the inferences or the truth value of certain statements in mathematics, right? So I think there's an analogy between learning rules in depicting and learning rules for doing formal math, right? Or reasoning by uh, by formal mathematical rules and learning how to create with formal artistic rules. Mm. I think that there's this, um, I mean, not only is there shared content, right? Geometry between those particular domains. But um, you learn tools for being generative and reasoning in mathematics uh, that allow you to achieve new representations or make yeah. new inferences, just like you can achieve and make new things in artistic production. But they rely on these kinds of um, linguistic descriptions that seem somewhat separated from the physical intuitions you have about how things work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that there are a lot of overlaps in the use of language or the use of formal rules that have evolved throughout human history and human cultures that allow us to achieve new knowledge and create new productions. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. And, you know, the middle step in this crazy chain that I have written down here, where it goes from what's happening in objective reality through a, through a precept, is that the right word? <laughs> through a, through percept? A, percept. Percept. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. Uh, it goes from objective reality through a percept, some uh, sensory modality, to whatever the mind is. Um, and then we try to output it back out through some sort of usually motor uh, you know, ability to a medium, and then the medium is then absorbed and the chain starts over in another entity. That middle step can... Uh, that's where that's, that's where art movements take place at. The middle so, step, which is the, remind me of the middle step. The middle step is so what's going on. What I'm going to try to get out of my mind yeah. back out again for you to see. Yeah. Um, some art movements are I want to get as mo- close to a one to one representation as possible of just what's happening visually, like a Norman Rockwell kind yeah. of thing. And then there are other movements which were like I, I feel yeah. something and I want you to feel the thing, which is not going to be a one to one representation of the thing. Yeah. And then it can be like all the way out to, I want you to feel something no one's ever felt before. Yeah. And whatever happens in your mind will be different from every single other observer of the thing that I'm producing. Yeah. Uh, but it will be emotionally similar, like yeah. a Rothko kind of thing, right? Or uh, some Dadaism thing or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, I'm not going to pretend I really know what I'm talking about. It's okay. But the, the, <laughs> the, 
I've never thought about this before, right? I've never thought in this way before. And so I think that's really cool. I think your work uh, has gives people an opportunity to um, make sense of reality itself through art uh, and through how people create art and, 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 and conceptualize it, which is something you just don't think about the things that science science or scientists do. Yeah. That's really cool. Thanks. I don't know what I'm saying, except that just, I got blown away by it just now, making sense of it, and I want people to know that, too. Um, and I guess that's where art movements come from, which leads to a question for real, or actual question instead of a soapboxy statement. Okay. Is, so, well, thanks for coming to my TED Talk, which is, <laughs> um, so what do you think that they were doing in the caves? Like, what was the cave art about? The yeah. That we always go back to. And we don't yeah. know if there's stuff before that, but we do know that's, like, around about yeah. some of the oldest representational stuff. Yeah. What do you think they were up to back then? I think they were doing things just like we're doing. I think that, um, so one thing I, I, I want to mention I think is important to kind of frame my answer to this question is that we've been talking about the geometric translation of information from the 3D world onto a 2D piece of paper. But inherent in any translation like that, as humans, we have this capacity for symbolic thinking. And so there is communication and intention that is embedded into our appreciation and production of pictures. Mm. And this is something I'm also investigating in the lab. If we ask a child to draw a picture as a veridical representation of what they're looking at versus as a communicative tool for another person to say, find something, Mm. what kinds of information are they including in each case and how do they modulate their um, depictions based on the goal of that drawing? And I think that... um, So this idea of symbolic representation and communication and intention is present not only in pictorial production, but also linguistic production. And it's something that humans are ready for and are predisposed to participate in. Mm -hmm. And I think this is something that allows us to understand drawing and art um, as kind of um, uh, having two parts, the spatial translation, which is more unique to um, pictorial production and communication and intention. And so a lot of work, for example, has looked at um, has looked at how children understand that a picture is a representation of something other than itself. Uh, less work has looked at how they then use, um, you know, once they understand it's a symbol, how they translate the geometry of a space into a picture. But I really think that those two things are um, can work together, and um, and we can sort of understand pictures as, as a, a kind of a, a drawing, producing pictures as involving both of these kinds of cognitive challenges. Mm-hmm. And so what do I think has changed from Paleolithic times to now? I think it's absolutely the case that um, drawings were just as communicative and intentional for Paleolithic humans as they are for humans today. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the ability to capture shape information about everyday objects, um, agents, stuff like that, um, the cognitive dispositions we have that allow us to intuitively translate spatial information about the 3D world in onto a 2D surface. Mm-hmm. That's shared. Um, but whatever we've gained throughout human history that have allowed us to depict or convey spaces um, that is not intuitive is what's changed from Paleolithic times to now. Mm. I have, I have a, this is going to be such a dumb question, but every yeah. time I've looked at those cave paintings... The two, the two that stand out in my mind right now are when they trace their hands, mm-hmm. and then another one is when they're just, most of the other ones are like of animals I assume that they were hunting. Yeah. Um, 
I don't remember there being any like portraits mm-hmm. depictions. And then for a long time throughout human history, it's like all we care about painting are people. All we care yeah. about painting are portraits or people sitting or yeah. lounging. How come the we don't have any Paleolithic portraits? Yeah, so I think that um, there are some. So there are some people. You know, the you're absolutely right. The 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 abundance of uh, drawings are of animals, um, and um, uh, way fewer um, uh, human faces or portraits. There are some. Um, I had a colleague recently bring me to a couple of uh, magnificent caves in the Dordogne in France, and we saw like three or four human faces on the. You've been to the caves. I've been to some caves. Way to be humble. Wow. I'm like, I'm talking about caves, and you're like, yeah, yeah, I've been there. You could have started like that. Well, (laughs) um, I was privileged enough to have some very friendly colleagues, a a colleague named Randall White in the anthropology department here at NYU. He's an archaeologist, and he studies Paleolithic cave art in France. And he's extremely generous with his time and um, and, and oh, brought us. Just stop. Go back. What was it like to go? What was it like to walk in and see? It was incredible. Thing? So um, you know, the anthropologists are really interested mostly in the kind of culturally specific aspects of this, you know, productive experience or religious experience or um, mythical experience that these people had when going into caves. And I sort of understand why. You go in there, it's cold, it's kind of dark. A lot of the time, this particular one we went to, it had been cleared out, but at the time the art was made, you would have to crawl through the cave. There was, you know, I don't know, uh, two to three feet of space that you could get through. Mm-hmm. You bring in like a little torch. I don't know. It would be totally otherworldly. And then they come in and make these pictures. So it's really hard to understand what was the motivation for doing that, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I think that's a really interesting investigation and um, the work of anthropologists to try to understand what the motivations were of these individuals to make this art and how they made the art uh, is really important. Um, my angle on it is, you know, what would encourage anyone at any time to make drawings like this or depict things in the way that these things were depicted, Right. So um, I think, for example, there may be an attentional hierarchy that we have to different kinds of things in everyday life that direct kind of gross trends in how many and how much of different kinds of information we depict. Mm -hmm. So maybe all of us have a kind of intuition to make drawings that are about agents. And it's because we use art as a communicative tool to other social partners, say humans, about the behaviors and goals of these agents. Mm -hmm. So I want to use drawing to um, communicate about these uh, animals that are in my everyday life. I don't quite understand, but I know they have actions and goals. Mm -hmm. So I want to, you know, art is the tool that I use to communicate uh, to other people, other social partners about the behaviors of agents. Um, That's something we, it's really hard to figure out these days. Um, because people are bombarded with art of their particular culture. Um, but I think that looking at drawings from young children, while they have, of course, seen many different kinds of drawings and are taught even in preschool how to draw, um, it may allow us to understand a little bit about what the universals are in the kind of the dispositions or attentional hierarchies we have in drawing. Mm-hmm the way that we might capture spatial information um, that uh, would shed light on the history of art as a whole, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to make an, a, a one-to-one analogy between children's art and Paleolithic artists. Paleolithic artists were mostly adults or at least teenagers, so they're, um, they're, they would be more cognitively similar to, similar to adults and teenagers today than mm-hmm. children today. 
I certainly don't want to make that analogy. It's a, it's actually a very old argument in um, in the study of children's drawings to put those two things in, in one-to-one correspondence. I don't. As a layperson, that seems to be like. Like they had a they had a rich environment of all sorts of things, yes, right? They yes. Had a, they had a, a social life, right? They probably had plenty of things we might not call, right? I mean, they weren't they didn't have billboards and commercials and and Starbucks, but they had still had things that they thought about all the time. They occupied mind space, and they still had the physical world and objects, agents, and places, and they still had capacity for you know linguistic intuitions and symbolic intuitions and adult obligations and, and adult obligations. hierarchies and mm-hmm. jealousies. Who who knows what else is going on in their life? They were just as human as us. Yeah, yeah. Um, what they didn't have is all the technological innovation and all the media, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So of course that's going to have an impact on what they draw. But I think that um, there are some things we can learn about what might be more intuitive or less intuitive in the way that we draw mm-hmm. by looking at kids because they haven't been quite as bombarded um, uh, with all of that media and technology and because it's a much kind of cleaner um, palette for mm-hmm. um, nice. for examining you um, for examining what uh, basic cognitive biases there are in our symbolic expressions let's talk about that because I, I know I told you I would talked for a certain period of time and I've already broken that promise. So, um, and if I was understanding you correctly here, you know, a lot of art, a lot of what we produce is to either give you, communicate something veridical. Um, so I would call that the Roman Rockwell route toward okay. translating the, uh, what's going on in my mind space to, uh, to, uh, physical space. So get into your mind space. And then there's the intentional communication representative stuff where yeah. like, you know, so in a kid's drawing, it's a difference between like drawing a house and then drawing a house on fire. When there's no house on fire, yeah. like why did you draw that house on fire, Tim? There's a reason, and I'm communicating through this space yeah. or something. Is that, so I'm following you, I hope. I'm just trying to see. Yeah. I'm yeah. still there? Okay. I know we run out of time, but there was a couple things I want to ask, and, I, and I'll make it a couple for real. Um, you mentioned cognitive biases a few times through your work, and... Um, and that the, your work offers a unique, uh, a, a, new, a unique avenue and conduit by which to make sense of these things and study them. How so? So I think that there are a lot of uh, pre-existing ways that we interact with the world um, through specific domains of knowledge, um, attention to objects, agents, and places, social partners, and I think. Uh, acknowledging these universalities in human cognition are the right way not only to understand what we have in common, but also to understand what makes us different and what we can um, learn through culture. So um, to better understand, say, relativistic kinds of intuitions we have depending on what culture we grow up in or what language we learn, um, to have that laid on top of what is actually in common among us to begin with is a richer understanding of those um, culturally specific kinds of things that, that we know or do. Um, so that's, these cognitive biases are ones that if we understand what they are, then we know what's afforded or what's allowed to be intervened upon through culture. What's a pretty good example of that? So I think art is a really good example. And that's okay, yeah. Yeah, and for, so... For our giant conversation. Yeah, for our giant conversation, I think art is a really good example. I think that there are lots of um, uh, things that humans share about um, art appreciation and art production, and I think 
there's also a lot of variation across human cultures in the way that we produce and and, um, and appreciate art. And I think our understanding of those uh, individual aspects of art or those cultural aspects of art um, can really be uh, even better understood if we understand what's universal in the way that, that we sort of appreciate art. Um, and you give me a short version of this, uh, of it, now that I have four recording devices. Um, <laughs> I was taught forever about the Mueller or Mueller liar illusion. Yeah. And you were, you were mentioning earlier about the tool of looking in the corners and everything. Yeah. And there's some, there's some other further anthological things, uh, about, I forget whose work it is, but the little, the little man and the yeah. spear and the, is the elephant here or there? Yeah. Um, so I was taught back in the day that these were all examples of, cultural relativism in perception itself. Yeah, that's baloney. That's what I was expecting you to say. And <laughs> if you could just briefly explain why we are now at the point where we're like, that's probably not true. Yeah. I, I think that you and I, we are at that point. Um, but I don't think that that's necessarily something that everybody's ready to believe. Mm. I think there's an intrigue involved in imagining what it, what it could be like to have this other mind where you don't see perspective. Mm-hmm. But again, I think that's baloney. I think that our perceptual tools are have been very well defined and shaped for us through evolution, right? There is a way that visual information comes into our minds and allows us to see or not see 3D information. I think these differences emerge when we ask people to, in language, judge a particular thing or interpret our instructions. And so, um, you know, asking if something is bigger, like, is this elephant bigger? It's ambiguous wh- whether you mean in the world, on the page... In perspective, so those are, I think, you can boil down a lot of those cultural differences potentially from, you know, experiments from a, a good while back to interpretations of questions, um, poor translations, or biases of the experimenter to be expecting a certain kind of answer, a certain kind of difference because of a mystification and the otherworldliness of this participant. Hmm. Um So you have to be really careful as an experimenter to make sure that what you're asking about, especially if you're asking someone through language, um, is reflective of their actual conceptions versus or perceptions versus um, a product of the way you're asking the question or um, the way you're interpreting their response. Mm -hmm. It's neat, though, because it's still uh, in some some version of this uh, little chain thing that is now going to be on my mind because it's just another thing that's difficult to get out of your mind space out to communicate to another human being like like there are lots of aspects of science itself that get hindered in this i mean if not all of it in that how do we how do we answer that question if we're going to have to employ language to get information out of the other person's brain box you know how do i get it out of there into a way that we can agree well that's what that person was experiencing and it's like Super difficult. Well, remember, I study babies. They can't say anything at all, right? So I deal with this challenge every day, right? Um, It's one of the most exciting things and one of the most challenging things studying infant cognition is figuring out how to probe what's in their minds. You can't just ask them. So, um, again, it's a challenge as as a researcher, as a scientist, but also it's thrilling to try to problem solve about how you can access the content of other people's minds when you have to overcome whatever these challenges are that are introduced by the everyday stuff that we do, like talk to other people, right? I can't ask this baby, did you think that was an unexpected outcome? What did you (laughs) expect instead? We have to rely on these other methods that, um, you know, are, 
of course, a proxy for what they're thinking, mm-hmm. but um, you know, we can uh, kind of allow us to zero in on what they uh, and make inferences about what they might be thinking. And it's like their how much they how how much time they spend looking at things, uh, emotional cues of surprise and stuff like that. There are all sorts of different measures that you can use. The um, the ones that are being used uh, often uh, with. Uh, Folks interested in infant cognitive development are looking time measures, so how long they look at particular outcomes, and that would be a proxy for their preference or surprise. Of course, um, a lot of this can flip, right? If you make the scene too complicated, a baby might look more at an expected outcome than an unexpected outcome. Um, eye tracking measures, uh, measures of EEG. There are even some folks who are starting to put infants in an fMRI scanner and mm-hmm. try to figure out um, what kinds of brain regions are responsive to particular kinds of stimuli, and if those are um, similar to the brain regions that adults use to recognize those I stimuli? I love this so much because it's like we have to do science on the tools that we're going to use to do science yeah. to that will then become tools to do other science. Yeah. And it's like it's fascinating to see all at every level there's these this iterated how are we going to do this thing. Yeah. Um, and that everyone's mission in the end is to um, it hopefully one day reach the bounds of the bounded rationality to bring this all the way back to the beginning. Like maybe we want, maybe there are some, there's some extraterrestrial terms and conditions uh, to yeah. uh, being uh, a conscious entity that we wouldn't understand the same way a cat would understand the current iTunes one. But like science is about like, well, whatever the gulf is between here and there, like yeah. let's cross it. Yeah. I mean, so Traditionally, the goal of science has been to um, explain the world rather than just predict its behavior, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, that's an important thing to consider, right? Especially if you're thinking about, like, what is AI teaching us these days? Well, if it's AI that we can't understand, maybe it'll make good predictions, but are we going to be able to explain anything about the world? Perhaps not. Um, I sort of, my own kind of struggle is, uh, thinking about how much science and doing science should be a description versus fitting into a particular theory. Mm. As a professional scientist, it is beneficial for you to have a theory um, mm. because it's you know easier to get grant money to mm. have broader impacts. Um, but sometimes it feels you know premature to have an overarching theory when really what you want to do is just describe what was the outcome of your experiment Mm -hmm. we're expected as scientists to have this theory and then it kind of sets some people up to not want to change that theory even in the face of new evidence oh yeah so i think that scientists who change their theories you know sometimes they're considered flip-floppers or whatever but that's what science is about. You should be opening to change your th- changing your theory in the face of new evidence, um, and I think that should be looked upon as a good thing. Um, yeah, this is something. This is my whole shtick. Like uh, yeah. currently, like uh, I, I I've, I've, it's been helpful to explain to people that that peep that brains kind of act a lot the way similar brains will act similarly to some of the scientific enterprise has acted in the past. Of this model is pretty useful for explaining or for predicting or for coming to this conclusion about what we perceive uh, experimentally, but then anomalies start to form and these problems start to form. You get better tools and you're like, oh, well, this is kind of like looking like the model might have some problems, but you don't toss the model away yeah. until you reach some threshold of uh, where the, there's, there's more anomalies than there aren't. And uh, it seems to be that people do the same thing. Like, they don't update their prior model until it really starts to fail them really 
or it starts to fail them in a way that like is bad, like they suffer social costs or whatever. Yeah. And that, you see it all throughout. Like I always talk about the Lavoisier auction. Like like it, like any scientific paradigm shift or any superseded scientific theory is like mm, I love that so much. I just love. <laughs> Many learned people going, this is how the world works. And yeah. I, how, da- how, how dare you? How dare you? Like, well, the, the experiment says it's not that. Yeah. Um, and so that goes back to cognitive empathy. Like, that, we see that in just regular old politics, regular old day-to-day life. If you're hanging out with your family or friends in the holidays, you're going to experience the same thing. And it's just this entity has these models to um, make sense of reality and they can't just throw the model away just because there's a couple of possible anomalies here and there. Like, it's going to take a lot to get somebody to toss yeah. it out. I'm just, I don't know what I'm talking about, but I'm trying to agree with you. No, but it's true because, I mean, Newtonian physics, right? We know much more about physics now, but Newtonian physics is actually really useful in describing sort of everyday physics, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, it's it's not right, but in some ways it's right. Oh, that so, took like, me forever. How do we to, use it, right? What you just said was the, one, of the, one of the biggest, uh, like, epiphanies for me is that I used to think that science was about, like, and then we added this onto that, and we added this onto that, and it accumulated. But if you wanted to be really, really hardcore, you'd have to say, well, Newtonian physics is wrong. Right. But but (laughs) it works works well enough at a certain... Level? Yeah, at a certain, like... um, I forget the word off the top of my head I'm trying to use, but at a certain level, um, um, you can build pine card... Uh, derby, you can build pine derby cars mm-hmm. out of it. You can even kind of go to the moon with it, right? But if you want to really describe the really real world or make satellites and have relativity get involved in things, then it's that's not how the, that's not yeah. the, that's not it. This is why cognitive science is great, I think, because you acknowledge what level you're operating at, and there are going to be certain kinds of descriptions that are going to be really helpful in whatever level you're operating at, right? They may not apply universally to you know, the biological level or whatever, but they might allow you to understand the framework in which you're working. Mm. And a lot of the misunderstandings, I think, between scientists are often just people talking about different levels yeah, of analysis. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And not being siloed. gracious or, or, yeah. or empathetic about, you know, where a particular explanation could be most powerful. So much of what I actually do, like, has any benefit at all, is not just producing, like, pop science that people can go, oh, and they can talk about it at a party. It's producing something that somebody in another silo will look at and go, oh, shit, well, we're kind of actually already, we're working we're working on that too, but we're using a completely different yeah. framework, or we, we're at a different level of, like, yeah. uh, um, I can't even remember the word I want to use. It doesn't matter. Um, uh so yeah, that. So yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> um, yeah. What um, what? So that I can so that we can like come in for landings. What where are you headed next with all this? What what are you currently like totally insane about? So I've just started a new project on artificial intelligence inspired by developmental psychology. Okay. So uh, I have a collaborator in the in data science and psychology, um, and we're um, part of an evaluation team for AI models that are um, attempting to achieve common sense. And so, whoa, whoa, whoa. what do you mean? What common sense? Common sense. What do you mean? Like human intelligence, something that uh, the way that we're just or an eighteen month old is able to move throughout everyday life and not, you know, destroy themselves. Um, 
What is your definition of common sense? My definition of common sense is, uh, actually, that's a, I don't know, Um, but I'll try. Uh, Yeah. Um, No, it's funny because this is a debate we're now having uh, among um, all of the scientists involved in this project. So um, it's a particularly sensitive issue, I guess, at the moment. But Excellent. For me, a definition of common sense is an ability to interact with um, uh, particular facets, elements of everyday life, in an efficient and clear fashion. That, um, is, that is common to all humans yeah. in, in a certain pool that you're right. researching. Right. And okay. again, for me, it's you know recognizing and interacting with objects, making judgments about the behaviors of other agents, um, uh, efficiently navigating places. Mm-hmm. And you're trying to give this to the robots. Trying to give this to the robots. Robots are good at all sorts of tasks, but they're not good at these kinds of general intelligence tasks. And I think that a key ingredient are the kinds of um, uh, domain-specific knowledge systems that that we as humans have and that have been evolved for us um, throughout phylogenetic history. And I think it's a good place to start when you're building AI. I can't believe I started this whole conversation talking about how I think we're going to be the that we're going to be superseded by uh, robots one day, and then you're actually the, the person who's trying to... Uh, <laughs> so, uh, well, there's there's two advantages, I think, for this kind of endeavor. So AI will eventually, you know, be able to, um, you know, replace humans and their flaws in things like um, self-driving cars. We don't necessarily want AI to look like humans when they're underlying self-driving cars. We want them to be better than humans, mm-hmm. right? But I think there are at least two areas where it would be beneficial to have um, AI look like human intelligence. So, um, for example, uh, allowing AI to better understand us. So, uh, capture the complex behavior of human societies, Mm. right? And second, sort of the inverse of that, allowing us to better understand AI. Mm. So, um, allowing AI to kind of better explain that behavior to us. Mm -hmm. And again, this goes back to this goal of science as explainability versus just prediction, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And, you know, modeling AI after human intelligence Um, might also allow us to kind of better understand and perhaps improve human cognition, right? Mm -hmm. Because if we can actually build human knowledge from the foundations that the developmental theories postulate, then, um, you know, we can uh, kind of build and design educational interventions that are rooted in what we know about how human knowledge is built Mm. um, and improve uh, the way that we teach or the way that we encourage development to happen. Oh, yeah. I'm imagining, like, like Da Vinci-esque biomechanical, like, you know, take a, take a cadaver and then try to build a simple machine that works the way the arm works, then lets you know how arms work, and then you're going to do that so we can have robots that, do, that know, that can think <laughs> and feel and have common sense, and then we'll know what that even is. That is... Amazing, and I look forward to what you do with it. I also look forward to that world. I hope I live to see that strange. Like uh, we already did some research similar to the Douglas Adams thing, where we like gave a bunch of information to some artificial intelligence algorithmic stuff, and yeah. it produced a pretty good version of the periodic table. And I've seen other things like that, yeah. which made me immediately think of you know the whole forty-two scene, right? And uh, and you're actually trying to make it happen. Good job. <laughs> I hope that Thanks. nothing bad happens. Me too. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, David. All right, so that's the end of that.
it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about in this episode, head to youarenotsosmart.com. Hey, would you like to support this podcast? Pitching in at any amount will get you the show ad-free, but at the higher amounts, you can get signed books, you can get t-shirts, posters, and all sorts of stuff. A whole new line of new merchandise is actually coming out next year, along with a lot of new things on the podcast. Go to patreon.com slash youarenotsosmart to find out more about how you can make this show bigger, better, bolder, happier. I want you to do that. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. This outro music is by Mogwai. Thank you very much, Mogwai and Caravan Palace, for donating this music to the show so long ago. Follow us on social stuff at you are not so smart slash you are not so smart pretty much everywhere. Twitter at not smart blog. Me, I'm at David McCraney. Facebook slash you are not so smart. Thanks. Bye. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy.